Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Craig Walsh on the show. Walsh is the son of the legendary San Francisco 49ers head coach, Bill Walsh, and himself a former executive with the 49ers. He also co-authored the book, The Score Takes Care of Itself, with his father and writer, Steve Jamison, which crystallizes Bill Walsh's principles of leadership. This was a fascinating conversation. Please enjoy. My first question to you, Craig, is what was it like to be a child of an NFL coach? Well, that, that's short. That, that's a, a very big, big question. You know, gosh, growing up as a kid, like any other you know, son, you, you look to your father for guidance and love, and you really don't understand his profession uh, until it spills over. And, and gosh, I, I can remember being about five, six years old and, and going to work with my father and having him be in these locker rooms with these athletes. And it was so much different than other kids. Um, you know, and, and one of the issues you had is that you lived and died on Saturdays for college and then Sundays for the pros because, you know, this was your father and you had such a stake in it that, you know, you felt the losses as well as he did. And then your peers at school, you know, even going through, you know, elementary school and junior high, you know, having kids rib you. And, and you know, when I kind of came of conscience you know, my dad was a, a a football coach at the Cincinnati Bengals back in in the late '60s as an expansion team, and and had I had been a California kid raised in the Bay Area, and then now to move to Cincinnati, Ohio, which I came to love, and, and I'm still a Bengals fan, and some of the writers back in Cincinnati still reach out to me when there's a, a matchup, but. It was a very interesting experience. And, and um, you know, as my relationship with my father grew, our, our friendship grew and his his trust in me grew. And he confided in me, you know, after tough losses because there was really no place for him to go. He, he couldn't go to his assistant coaches and say, God, I'm crushed because he, you know, in six days he was doing it again. And he couldn't really go to my mother because she didn't really understand, you know, what the struggles it was to be in that profession. So it kind of fell to me, you know, and, and I grew with him. And, and again, it was very interesting. And, and there's a lot of accolades that go with, you know, being his son and growing up in the lean years and then such so many benefits growing up when, when things were going really well. Yeah. And I, you know, our current coach of the San Francisco 49ers is Kyle Shanahan, who obviously I, I grew up with watching his dad, Mike coach. Sure. And now as an adult, I'm watching Kyle coach. And, but we see that a lot in the NFL where we have, you know, sons of coaches go on to coach themselves. You know, I mean, Belichick comes to mind, other coaches like that. What do you think it, what do you attribute that to? Do you think it's the culture of the family? Do you think it's the networks that people are in? Or is it just a shared love of football within the family? Why do we see so many sons of coaches going on to coach themselves? Well, like me, you, you grow up in it, you know, and, and they have so many pluses, you know, and there are some negatives, but you know, as a young child, I, I was a ball boy at the Cincinnati Bengals, and I grew up with the team. And then I was a, a ball boy at the San Diego Chargers when my father worked under Tommy Prothro, which is a name that's for, often forgotten. And then at the San Francisco 49ers, I was literally embedded with the team as I graduated from high school and went on to play my own football at UC Davis. I was embedded. So it's really as a child, especially a son, it's really all you know. 
And if you're not intrigued by other things in society, I happen to be involved in real estate and I found real estate was my passion, commercial real estate, especially. So I branched out into the commercial real, as real estate aspect of it only because my father had had so much successes. Was I always going to be measured in my father's shadow? And again, a lot of times that deters some coaches, but in Kyle Shanahan's, what a great job he's doing, not, not at all. And he, and he just basically was the, the B model that rolled off the assembly line with all the upgrades from his father, who was a damn good coach, but, but he got all the upgrades and, and look where he's at today. Yeah. Let's talk about another coach that I think people know the name, but they don't think about his lasting impact, which is Paul Brown. Sure. Uh, Paul Brown, one of the greatest NFL coaches of all time. And I, I, I wanted to ask about what lessons your father took from him. Obviously, Paul made a bunch of innovations in football, inventing the draw play, thinking about preparation. Uh, but what do you think your dad gathered from him? Well, again, Paul was an icon. In 1968, the, the Bengals were an expansion team, and Paul – you know, had the 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 ability to, to reach out and get really any coaches that he wanted. Now, he had come from Cleveland, obviously the last name of the Cleveland Browns, you know, carries his, his last name. But but his expansion team with the Bengals, he reached out to my father, who was a West Coast uh, coach who, who had been coaching under Al Davis at, at the Oakland Raiders at the time and, and agreed to come out and be the quarterback's wide receiver coach. And in those days, professional football teams maybe had 10 coaches. And so a lot of coaches were the linebacker, defensive backs. They were the receiver quarterback coach. And so, so he learned so many things just through the organizational standpoint of football. If you're an assistant coach, you're pigeonholed away just doing what you're right, is right in front of you. You don't have any concept of the organization of the whole team offense and defense and travel and accommodations off season, you know, the scouting, the draft. So he learned from Paul Brown, the organization of football. And I don't think there was any other man that was more organized from an organizational standpoint than, than Paul Brown was. Yeah. One more question before we jump into 49ers in the 1980s. And I, I don't have any experience personally coaching athletic teams, although I coach for a long time as a speech and debate coach. So I'd coach okay. students debating. And there were some years where I'd have really successful teams, but it wasn't, I didn't have like the emotional and interpersonal memorable experiences. Did you find that, or do you think that a team's success on the field makes it the most memorable of the teams? Because your dad coached a lot of teams and mm -hmm. the 49ers are often treated you know, it's kind of the primary experience for him in terms of his success and all those things. But I'm sure he gathered things from the other teams that he was involved with as well. And so I'm just I'm just curious from like a kind of a coach perspective, how they view their tenures at different teams, if they have more success or less success. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's a team sport and football is one of these that you, you have 11, you know, people on on one side, 11 on the other. And then you've got special teams and kicking and and, and so each team is different. And what you strive to do, and it's in that the book that, that we both know, is that you take basically what you give you, but they give you and you make it better through team integration. And, and you, you don't play for the head coach. You play for the fans at a certain aspect, but you play for each other. 
and certain men and, and certain women and, and certain sports, you, this is the essence of it. Is if you can get your team to play for each other, and it sounds cliche, but it makes a huge difference. And, and you see this so much today in the NFL, you know, that the teams that are the bottom one third, you see them walking off the field. You see them having silly penalties where they know better since playing in, in high school. You don't do those things, but they're not playing as a team They're playing as individual. But then you see the top one third of any sport. It could be women's basketball. It, it, it could be baseball. It, it could be, you know, the, the NFL. These teams are elite and they play for each other. They're, they're picking each other up. They're running on the field. They don't say bad things in the press when things go bad. And, and this is what all coaches, I think, strive for is, is to integrate their teams to really understand that it is definitely just a team and, and they need to, to find a way to, to integrate. Okay. So let's jump to San Francisco. So in this period, late seventies, early eighties, San Francisco is going through different periods of turmoil. Uh, obviously, we have the assassination of Harvey Milk, but we also have the AIDS crisis that reached San Francisco in the 80s. And there's a lot of backdrop of crisis. And then your dad enters this space as the head coach of a team that wasn't blue blood at this point. You know, They were still trying to achieve success. So can you talk about the context he entered and, and then talk about how your dad tried to think about bringing about change in this organization? Good. Do we, Jordan, do we have two or three hours on this? Do how much? Yeah, time do have? yeah. you could give me the synopses, <laughs> right? <laughs> I could go on for for volumes on this. Kind of in a in a backdrop sense of as, as we get to to the the the, the late seventies and into the early eighties, when my father was was hired to be a coach, he had struggled in Cincinnati with a scheme that just wasn't mainstream. If you look at the coaches at the time, you had Hank Stram, you, you had Tom Landry, gosh, you, you had all kinds of other coaches that had been in, embedded in these teams for tens of years as the head coach. And, and they had a certain way of, of, of conducting football and running football on both defense and offense. And it spilled over to college. You had teams like Nebraska that would throw the ball twice. I mean, if you were going to be a wide receiver and go to Nebraska, you you weren't really a wide receiver. You were just a tackle that wore a, a, a you know a, a high number. So so what when he came into the 49ers, Ed DeBardlo had given him a chance. I mean, so many teams had passed him by. Paul, you know, wasn't giving my father glowing recommendations because he wanted to keep him. He he knew that he was the essence of the Cincinnati Bengals in, in, in 1970. And so when he finally got his chance, and I've thanked Ed DeBartolo so many times for, for having the courage to hire my father with, with his, at that point, short passing game and taking what they give you. But that was no picnic either. You know, Ed DeBartolo had been through a bunch of coaches and we had a, a general manager. And this is when my father and I started to gel. I was a senior in high school on my way to college. And and my father had, this is a great little anecdote. My father had said, hey, look, you know, I, as you know, I've just hired on as a head coach of the 49ers. O.J. Simpson was, was traded for prior to my father taking over. And O.J. was flying in from, from New York. And let's go meet him. Let's go meet the legendary O.J. Simpson. We all had grown up watching O.J. Simpson. I mean, what a, what a talent he was. And he, he had come from Potrero Hill in San Francisco. So he was a homecoming for him. And so my dad and I went out to SFO, uh, San Francisco International Airport, to pick him up. And this is the old days when they used to wheel up the stairs to the planes. 
And my dad and I were waiting, we're all smiles. And all of a sudden my dad sees OJ getting off the plane. He's sidestepping the way down the stairs. And my dad looks at me and, and uses a, a little bit of a profanity because he knew that OJ had had long since his, been his prime. And now he was going to be a member of this team because they basically traded away all their draft picks for, for OJ, who was, was at that point at the very, very much end of his career. But that being said, he was accepted by my father, accepted by the team, and they found a role for him. Again, my father integrated OJ Simpson into this locker room and, and gave him a couple of plays. He was soon out of football. He, if you want to check the, the history books, the record books, he was quickly out of the 49ers at that point, but he was still integrated. But that being said, the team had zero really personnel. There wasn't a, an all-star on the team. They had traded away all their draft picks it was basically a cast-off team of, of second-tier players. And I and I use that carefully just because some of them may be watching this or or hear <laughs> this, but they were second-tier guys. And, yeah. and and he had to find a way rebuilding get, phase. That's what they call it, right? That's the word uh, we say. I wouldn't even say rebuilding. You know, I, I would say more was an empty piece of land. Um, <laughs> Lots of potential. <laughs> without permits, Jordan. Yeah, without even permits on the land here. So it took him a few years to struggle. And again, you know, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but this is kind of the basis of, of modern day coaching. My father turned that team around in three years. So if you look today, coaches really only get about three years because Bill Walsh had did it in three years, even with a team that had zero people. And my dad had to use a wealth of his experience and really go out on an island. This is when my father mentally struggled were these years that he had to build this team when when other teams just, just were juggernauts. I mean, there were teams like the Dallas Cowboys in those eras that were stacked with players and and quarterbacks and, and everybody, the fastest receiver. I think they had Bob Hayes at the time. And, you know, they had a, a number of speedsters. And so for him, you know, he spent... I'm going to say 70% of his mental capacity on these first three or four years with the 49ers, just, just to get them competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And then my next question is really about what, what was the tipping point that, that turned the tables ultimately when that success started happening? Is it a, is it, it was it a tipping point or is it a slow build and then suddenly there's success? Well, you know, again, it was a building effort and you just had to have enough components to, to, to be competitive. And I think once Joe Montana had, had come aboard, um, the raw talent that he was, but even before that, if you go back to fact checkers, look at Steve DeBerg last year with the 49ers, he might've led the NFL in passing. Now he, he led it by throwing a heck of a lot of, of 10 and 15 yard passes, but the 49ers could move the ball literally on any team they played. Now, the defense wasn't very good, and so they gave up a lot of points, but it kept the fans in San Francisco happy because my dad would run some flea flicker plays, and he would go for it when he needed to go for it, and and he slowly started building. And so when Dwight Clark came aboard and Joe Montana came on and Randy Cross was, was there, and, and you had a couple carryovers, Keith Varnhorst and some of the others, you started to get some momentum and they beat a team they shouldn't have beat. And then all of a sudden they got competitive. And then the, the, you know, West coast offense, which, which people talk about even today, you know, really it kind of upset my father a little bit. It really wasn't the West coast offense. It was the Cincinnati Bengal offense. Yeah. Was I was going to ask about that later, but let's jump into what, what are, what are, 
What misconceptions do you see about the way people talk about West Coast offense beyond just like its attribution, where it came from? Like what are what are some common misconceptions about it? Well, where it really originated at, you know, and again, it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier with Paul Brown at the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals were in a very much a similar situation than the 49ers were in 1979. They didn't have a quarterback. They didn't have a receiver. They didn't have a running back. It was an expansion team. We had received everybody's leftovers. And I remember my father on that expansion draft in 68, Paul Brown says, you build a team around a center. So they drafted Bob Johnson, a center, as their first round pick in the whole NFL draft. My dad sobbed. I, I, I kid you not, he, he shed a tear that they would take Bob Johnson, a center, in the first round of the expansion draft. And there were all kinds of players, some of them being Hall of Fame players that were available at that point in the draft. But But it was very similar to the sense that my father had to come up with a plan uh, to get yardage. They didn't have a running back. They didn't have an offensive line. So basically they were going to take what the defense gave them. And the defenses had never really seen short passing. It, it was usually the deep ball, the, the Daryl Monica deep ball, but it wasn't the short passing. And heck, you never threw the ball out of the backfield to your fullback. So these were the things that he had to accomplish in Cincinnati just to move the ball. So if you look at the makeup of some of these teams, as soon as my dad drafted Ken Anderson out of Augustana, which is a NCAA Division III team, Paul Brown cried. Paul Brown shed a tear because now we're wasting this super high pick on Ken Anderson, who wasn't on a lot of people's radar screen, but a few. He was going to get drafted for sure because he had put up big numbers there. But as soon as Ken Anderson came onto the scene, he now had an accurate passer. Just like when Joe Montana came onto the scene, he had an accurate passer. Now we have something to work with. Yeah, let's talk about a quarterback that undersized, maybe not the arm strength that some other quarterbacks have. And I'm not talking about Brock Purdy because that's similar criticism that's being made of Brock <laughs> Purdy today. But I'm talking about Joe Montana. He dropped to the third round in that draft. What did your dad see in Joe? Well, he, he was a quick learner. Now, there's some things that have come out recently about Joe's memory. When you flip the cards over, he could easily identify that he remembers where the cards are. I mean, he's got a very, very acute memory. And, and he's, a, he's a study. He's a Notre Dame guy, and he's a very quick study. So he understood what my father was getting at. And, and my father only gave Joe tasks that he could accomplish. Some of these coaches, and you see a lot of it today in the NFL, are trying to do things that their players just can't do. They're trying to complete passes that they're just mentally or and even physically not able to, to do. Now, you know, the quarterback coaching has really gone to the wayside. It was very much a dominant factor in the 80s, and you saw a lot of great quarterbacks in the 80s because there were coaches that were much more acute to, 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 to the fundamentals of playing quarterback. But, but I think that's really basically it. And the other player, I mean, there's a bunch we can talk about, but we obviously have to talk about Jerry Rice for a second. And this is, again, going, and I don't mean to bring Brock, Brock Purdy up a bunch here, but there's a lot of parallels here going on, which is there's questions about these days about whether a player just fits in well with a system or whether they have a unique talent in and of themselves. So again, let's go back to the Cincinnati Bengals. My father was an island. He he traveled by himself. He was all by himself. He, he didn't have a lot of close friends. He just at one point woke up and dedicated himself to football. So what he did in Cincinnati, so if you look at the progression of the Cincinnati Bengals, 
they were a playoff team shortly after being an expansion team. How did my father and, and, and Paul Brown at the time do it? Well, they drafted a guy named Isaac Curtis. So if you put Isaac Curtis up and turned his back and put Jerry Rice next to him, guess what? They look exactly the same. They played exactly the same. There was a guy named Chip Myers who played for the Bengals. If you took Chip Myers and put him by himself and looked at Dwight Clark, Dwight Clark was Chip Myers. They were, they were inexchangeable tight ends. You had Bob Trumpy, who was a long-armed guy who played just like Russ Francis, who's just passed away, was a dear friend of mine. So these were players, these were positions that he could coach around because he had had moderate success at the Bengals. Ken Anderson was a similar quarterback to, to, to Joe Montana in, in, in statistics, not, not physical attributes, but they both played a very mental game. And they went through progressions, you know, and again, I think the the biggest attribute attribute you can have for a quarterback even today is just the ability in your mind to slow the game down. You know, it's like playing golf. You know, the worst golfers are the guys with the quick swings, right? They're the ones that shank the ball. The guys that have the nice, slow, steady swings have slowed the game down in their mind to score. And the same with playing quarterback. They slow the game down. They see it slower and let it progress instead of all panic break loose with the snap of the ball. So I think if you look at the parallel, and this goes back to your question about the West Coast offense, these were, were players. And if you look at the history of, of, of the 49ers, they would replace players that fit into the system. And that allowed the continuity. And like we talked about, the integration of the team. Yeah. I mean, I think there is, you know, calling someone a systems player today is oftentimes an insult in some ways or this idea that this kind of individualism that an individual player's athletic ability their you know their ability to rack up fantasy points as people you know you know fantasy sports and gambling sure. has become such a big thing uh, but every player always plays within a system and you know and there are some systems even for the best athletes that would make their performance inferior and i think it's frustrating for you know, amateur sports fans like myself to kind of hear these things dichotomized because they're just, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I think the dichotomy is false. It, it's it's always both. Well, it is both. And again, you know, and, and this is how they, you know, again, I'm not going to talk about the New England Patriots too much here, but but this is how they had such success. They, they they had integration on their team and they plug guys in the West, the Welsh Welkers and all, all the guys that they, they looked the same. They played the same. They just kept changing it out. The constant was was obviously the quarterback, Tom Brady. But but again, when it, one player will open it up for another player. And if you look at the passing game, especially in the NFL, you've got to be at a certain place at a certain time. You can't, the quarterback can't wait for the receiver to get to where he wants to throw it because you're either there or you're not. And if you're there, he can read the defense and know if, if there's somebody standing next to him, that means they've come from here. That means he's open. That's how quick your mind has to work. And this is why Joe was so successful. He, he like a chameleon, he could see out of both eyes and know that there was basically four guys deep and we had three receivers. So if he looked, he knew that there had to be a hole to his deep left, his short left, his deep right, his short right. He had to know that. And that's why he became so accurate, because he knew that they would be open. Now, that always is wrought with some interceptions and a bad pass and a tip ball. But this is how they went through their progressions. Nobody has the mental ability to look at one guy. 
he's not open, then go look at another. Oh, he's not open. You only have three seconds to throw the ball typically before somebody is nibbling on your toes. So you have to be able to know where the where the ball is going to be when it's going to be open. And again, this was Joe Montana's strength, as well as Ken Anderson's strength, was that they knew based on this their peripheral vision that that there, somebody was going to be open. So like you said, it, it works off each other. But again, you like a like a Jerry Rice, you know, if you timed him in the 40 yard dash in his prime coming out of college, he was going to be in the middle of the receivers. That's how people in those days measured you as a wide receiver. He probably ran a four, five, six, maybe. And he, he'd yell at me now. We're, we're dear friends. But he wasn't the four, four guy, the four, three, five guy. He might even been a, you know, close to a four, six guy in a 40. But his acceleration from 20 yards was, was, was the star. That's where he, his bread and butter was. So when you see him catch the ball, then he accelerates. And off the line, he accelerates and he slows down and accelerates again. So he used his skill sets, not like Tyreek Hill does, where he just hits the afterburner and he's gone. Jerry had to work with deceptive speed, but was it was a great addition because it, it made him even more wide open because the defensive backs were fast. They were moving quickly. Jerry, all he needed was separation. And that's when you always, that new word, yards after catch. Yeah, came. yeah. Just, yeah, just because of Jerry Rice's deceptive 10 to 20 yard burst. Mm. And so, so yes, was he a great player? Obviously, possibly the best ever. Did he play in a fantastic system? Yes, probably the best ever. So you combine those two things and, and you see, you know, the, the Super Bowl outcome. Yeah, I love the answers that end in both. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about the impact of the Niners' success on the region and the city. Any 49ers fan worth their salt knows that the 1980s were some of the greatest days for the franchise. What impact did that have on the city? And given that she just passed away, could you briefly talk about Diane Feinstein's relationship to your family and the Sure, sure. Diane Feinstein, what, what what a stalwart she was in, in the city. And she came around just about the right time that Bill Walsh did. The city was in turmoil, like you mentioned. Harvey Milk had been assassinated. The AIDS epidemic was running wild. You had labor disputes. You had a class war. You, 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 all kinds of things were going on. You, you, the 49ers had been beat by Dallas twice. They, they, you know, poor guys were, were you know. You, so uh, Diane Feinstein had her suite at Candlestick. And again, we hardly called them suites. They were more concrete bunkers with glass than they they were suites. I think we we all got a hot dog and a soda pop. That that was the extent of the catering <laughs> that we had. <laughs> but but her her suite was directly next to my mother's suite. And as a, a senior in high school, moving forward through my uh, informative college years, I would come down every Sunday and we would sit next to Diane Feinstein and we would get to be quite close friends. Um, during those years, and and we would cheer together, and we would cry together, but we could all feel it. And, and Diane would, would would turn around and, and over and look at us when when because she knew who we were. She knew my mother was was obviously Bill Walsh's wife. So we would she'd come over, we'd say hi, and we grew together, you know, as as fans, and and, and then we grew together as a city. And and so during one of the first Super Bowl victory parades in 1981. My father rode with Diane Feinstein and, and 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 she wept on his shoulder saying that, you know, you were one of the major catalysts in bringing this city together. Because if you 
looked at the dock workers at this time, they were wearing 49er gears. If you looked on the financial district, guys are wearing 49er shirts. If you looked in the inner city, they're wearing 49er shirts. So everybody, like a groundswell, came together from San Francisco all the way down the peninsula and even up to Sacramento. It was a groundswell and it brought everybody together because on Monday, um, Monday morning, all you could talk about was the win and how great it was and how sweet it was and how far we had come. And, and so that broke down, you know, the racial barriers, the financial barriers, the cultural barriers for a city that had been really in turmoil. Yeah. One more question before we talk about the book, which I want to spend some time talking about. Oftentimes the defense of the 49ers in the 1980s is overlooked, but it was equally a part of the success of the team. Can you briefly mention both your dad's philosophy around having more athletes on defense and how what what made the defense equally, in my mind, as successful as the offense? Well, this goes back to the San Diego Chargers when my dad was the quarterback receiver coach. And, and my dad had brought Dan Fouts into the organization from Oregon. And, and Dan Fouts at that time was in a quarterback battle. And, and Dan was definitely, don't you know, I hope he's not listening to this, but my dad told me, Dan's going to be our guy. We just got to make him work for it. But But he had seen the personnel at the Chargers and they had a heck of a bunch of guys that weren't being utilized. And he had known through being the, the offensive guy that the one thing offensive guys hate is a pass rush. If you have a pass rush, it disrupts all the things we talked about, about the peripheral vision and getting guys open and getting to a spot. Pass rushes destroy that. Now the guy's got to scramble and, and try to make something happen. And this is when you see a lot of interceptions thrown. So my dad in the 80s with defense knew that he needed to have a quick defense. He didn't need the hardest hitting defense, but he need a disrupting defense. And so one of the first moves you see Bill Walsh make is he goes and gets Fred Dean from the Chargers. And along with Fred Dean, he gets Louis Kelcher and he gets Gary Big Hands Johnson. Louis Kelcher's hands were bigger than Gary Johnson's, trust me. We used to play poker together and he looked like he was a giant holding little cards. But So he had these three guys, which instantly had an impact on the San Francisco 49er defense. Then you had the draft where Carlton Williamson and Ronnie Lodd and Eric Wright and, and Dwight Hicks come in. And, and th these four guys were the closest teammates that I really had really ever seen. So when I talked about integration and playing for each other, these four men were, were, were set the set the the goal and the, the high bar for that because they played as a team, a cohesive unit, like nobody's business. And they arguably became the best secondary in the NFL when, when you've got arguably the best quarterback, Joe Montana. So that's what the captain of the ship strives for. And once you get those components, now you can really put your foot down on the gas pedal, which they did. And, and, and the numbers really prove themselves out there. Yeah. Complimentary football is the only way to go. Having, having, being able to trust each side of the ball is a, is, Absolutely. not everyone has it, but when you have it, it's, it's an amazing thing. And, to and have. then you got to find a way to keep it. So if you look at the, the 49ers, and this is kind of a sidebar, there wasn't a lot of the eighties were, were the, one of the high points in paying players dollars. There was really no salary cap. And a lot of these owners had other businesses where they made a, a, a tremendous fortune. So between the giants and, and other teams, the Redskins, there was no salary cap. 
So you could lure players away at the end of their contracts by giving them more money. But if you look, how many 49ers really left the organization? Very, very few because it was an integrative, cohesive unit. They were being paid very handsomely by Ed DeBartolo. So just to go away for more money and then get in a team where you're just going to be hanging your head was no big deal. But that being said, there was a lot of players that wanted to come to San Francisco and get that ring. And they did. And some got ring multiple. Let's talk about the impetus for the book. Uh, can you share a little bit about the background of the origin of the score takes care of itself? Well, this is a tough subject for me. And, and, and again, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm an emotional guy, but my dad was passing away of, of, of his leukemia and it was a slow death. It was a long drawn out treatments and things like that. And he had created an outline for the book and uh, he wasn't going to be able to finish it. Um, Steve Jameson, which is one heck of an author, he, he crafted the number of books on John Wooden. And there's a lot of parallels between John Wooden and Bill Walsh and their philosophies. But my dad on his basically his deathbed, he maybe he's going to pass away in four or five months. But he said, look, this is the book that I always wanted to write. Um, you know, I had publishers and he, he's had Finding the Winning Edge and a number of other books that that are basically uh, textbooks. The, the, these are fundamental textbooks, roadmaps. Um, there's no personality into these books. There's a little sidebar here and there, but he wanted to let his hair down and, and, and not do an autobiography, but, but he wanted to build a book on the fundamentals of leadership, which took him a lifetime to learn. There, there's Paul Brown in here. There's even some Tommy Prothrow in here. You know, there's Dick Vermeil in here. They were childhood friends and college friends. And so this is a culmination of his life as he saw it in a leadership format. So it was very, very difficult for him to write, but he wanted to get this all out. I mean, he knew that he had this affliction and, and this is when he started to write this book. And, and he, he pulled me aside one day and goes, hey, look, you know, I got this book and it's the one I always wanted to write. Do you mind finishing it for me? And, and I, he goes, you're the only one that knows everything that that's not in it. I only have a working outline. Can, can you finish it? Get with Steve Jameson and finish the book. And I just said, oh, of course, dad, anything you want, you, you got it. I, I can do it. And, you know, unfortunately my, my dad would, would, would pass away two months later. And, and then within two weeks, the publisher is calling me, where's the book? <laughs> so I had to sit down and, and, and with Steve and we crafted it and filled it all in. And I, you know, uh, did the best that I could. I mean, it was very emotional because the way the book is, is written, it's in his voice. So, so when you read the book, a lot of his contemporaries, his coaches, his players have read the book and say, when I'm reading it, it's, it's Bill talking. Yeah. And that's the genius uh, uh, of Steve Jameson in this book. Yeah. And I, I can't even imagine the, the dual nature of having a publisher deadline and dealing with grief from losing your father yeah, at the same no, time. Like that, that sounds like a whole lot to, to balance at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about the standards of performance and why you think it's not only applicable to football, but it's applicable to your whole life? Well, you, I, I think one of the things in the book that always comes back that, that I always think of is that when he says in the book that no one's going to ever come back and thank you for taking it easy on him. <laughs> right. It's kind of the premise that runs through the book. I mean, again, it's it, it's what the 49ers turned into when we talked about integration. 
it started with Roger Craig. Every time Roger Craig would get the ball in practice, he would sprint to the goal line. I don't care if he was taking the ball on the opposite 10-yard line. Roger Craig would sprint to the goal line and then come back and all the way back. So then Jerry Rice, same thing. Jerry Rice would catch a quick slant. He would sprint to the end zone. Then when they scored touchdown, the whole team would sprint to the end zone. So you started to get this standard of performance. Now, there was some malcontents, like there is in professional sports, that weren't buying into it. And there were some times in that locker room where some of the senior players took some of the younger players after practice back out to that practice field, and they settled it. Um, and, and so this became the standard of performance. And then it, then from the football field, it, it leaked into the coaching staff, and it leaked into the administrative staff. Then it leaked into the equipment group. Then it leaked into the bus drivers and it leaked into everything. So before you knew it, everybody was running from the five yard line to the next goal line. And, and that became the standard of performance. So then it didn't never had to be said. You never had to address. I don't see hustle out there. I mean, you, you, if you interview some of the, the, the players from those those eras, there was never a ball on the ground in practice. Nobody dropped passes. Nobody fumbled the ball. The defense didn't drop interceptions. The kickers didn't fumble the snaps. It became a mantra that we need to be 15% better than the other team and we'll win every time. And, and it goes on to, to, to distractions. So the, 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 the performance standards include distractions, marital distractions, financial distractions, legal distractions. We have to eliminate the distractions. And you see distractions, what they do is they bring these bottom third teams in the NFL to their knees. Guys being arrested, guys having something public, guys hitting. Those are the things that the 49ers just didn't do because they knew those other guys will do it. Just give them some time. And that really, I think, was the essence of the, the standard of performance. Well, and you you hear how how this has been translated to so many coaches. I mean, I was just watching that show on HBO Hard Knocks where they follow an NFL team during the preseason and Robert Sala, who has connections to the 49ers, sure. at one point in the episode talks about when we are all when someone scores a touchdown, the whole team is running to the end zone to celebrate with that player. And if you know if you know your lore and your history, you know where that comes from. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but it's been integrated so much into the culture of the NFL, and it's fun to be able to kind of identify those strains and see where it comes from. One thing that I definitely took from the book is how to think about failure. What was, what was your dad's philosophy on failure and how oh, you thought about it? Terrible. You know, just terrible on failure. You know, you you work so hard, and 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 you know, the, the average fan doesn't know how many man hours go into a seven week NFL work week. I mean, there's everybody's working 60, 70 hours a week. Combine that by the amount of people on your team. I mean, the man hours are tremendous. So you have so much invested in your day to day job that that failures is is not an, an option now my dad didn't take failure very well now he was uh, used to it just because he had come from the, the Cincinnati Bengals as an expansion team he had gone to the San Diego Chargers which I think the year before my dad came in they they lost every game I think that's I think fact check me on that but I'm pretty sure he they had lost every game and that was part of my my question to my dad when we were leaving Cincinnati to go to San Diego, I said, you know, they didn't win a game last year. But 
but but so failure to him was personal. He took blame. And, and I think this is why you know, part of this thing and, and back a little bit on a sidebar here. So the book, I as soon as I had it published and as soon as I had a hardback in my hand, I, I scripted one to Ed DeBartolo. And and again, I had thanked Ed DeBartolo in my dad's service for, for having the courage and the you know ability to hire my father and give him a chance to show his skills. And so in the copy I gave to, to Ed DeBartolo, I, I said that the sum is greater than its parts. And, and that's really basically what I said. In, and I and I signed it to him because without Ed DeBartolo, there's no Bill Walsh. Without no Bill Walsh, there's not this. Without this, without it was the culmination of a lifetime of work to get these guys to where they were to be successful. So really that's the way I see it was just the, the culmination of just the parts and the, the, the ability. And so everybody took losses terribly, but again, my dad would lose a tough game Sunday. By, we would sit in the jacuzzi in, in Menlo Park, California, have a glass of Rombauer Chardonnay, maybe two, I'm not going to go past that, but we would sit there and he, in his mind, he would go through every play on his own, what he did, uh, of what where his shortcomings may have been. So when he gets in front of the team, we can talk about what happened. He's not the guy that's, you did this, you did that. How can you did this? Who? No, he admitted that maybe as a staff, we may. So everybody shared in the loss. It wasn't somebody, I'm going to get in my car and drive away. You guys are who you are. No, no, by no means was that he, he took losing very, very personally. Yeah. And you just brought it up. So I'm going to continue on with it. Cause I was going to talk about it. A lot of the book, I, I, when I first read it, I kind of saw through the lens of like his relationship with the team, but also a head coach is really uh, in charge of a large staff where he has delegated a lot of responsibility. How do some of the ideas translate in the book to working with his staff, his assistant coaches and his uh, personnel management? Well, there's nothing worse, and this will speak to your audience, and, and everybody can relate to this. There's a hopelessness feel you have at work if nobody's listening to you. If, if you're just a cog in the wheel, you're not motivated. You do your job. You're compensated handsomely. Maybe you're not, but you don't feel you have true input. So your, your performance standards are, are, aren't great. They're good, but they're not great. So... <clears throat> I really think that I lost my train of thought. What, 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 we were we were talking about just managing personnel and assistant coaches and staff and how. Oh yeah, yeah. So here, that's right. So, so so what my father did to alleviate that the sense of that you have no contribution, my father would put the game plan together, and then he'd sit down with all the coaches and tell me what you think. Where do you, where where can we improve on this? And sure enough, you guys would let's say you had 10 coaches in the room with you and each one had something. My dad would walk away with 10% more than he brought into the room, which maybe is just enough to win the game. And, and their ideas were put into practice. So it wasn't my father handing in them the game plan. It was them. Here's what I'm thinking. Can we do this? And the guys would have input and it really worked out that way. And, and, and sure enough, that we are, we're talking in small percentages to win here. It is at such a high level. No one's going to be 30% better than anybody else. You're going to be 5% better, 10% better. And so that's really what he did. And then it spilled over to the staff, you know, being the, basically the president of the organization for, for many years, he would have to sit down with the staff 
the travel people, the salary cap people, you know, the common, all the people. And then he would talk through, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? This, what do we do now? He wouldn't spend near enough time on this as he did with a football, but he would, they would have input and their input would be acknowledged and, and, and initiated, you know, on defense, the same thing. Now, my dad didn't understand defenses to the point that he wanted to ever coach it. Although I think he was the defensive back coach at the Raiders before he went over to Cincinnati. But those, back in those days, you were just basically a manager anyway. But that being said, he let George Seifert have pretty much continuity and complete control over the defense. Now, they, would they have a closed-door meeting every now and then? Of course they would, like anybody would. But but George knew that Bill wasn't going to hand him a script saying, this is what you're going to do. So they had autonomy. And they won together and they lost together. And this, again, gets into that integration to get and to squeeze out that 10, 15% more than the other team's going to be able to have. Okay, my last question before we close and talk about book recommendations, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to share, you know, some of my listeners might see sports as kind of uh, secondary or tertiary to understanding history. I disagree. I think understanding sports, specifically in American culture, is super important in the same way that understanding religion is and same way understanding art through history is. Can you share a little bit about why it's important to understand sports, specifically in California, to understand our history and culture? Well, absolutely. And that's a great segue. You know, my father was a history major at San Jose State, wrote a thesis. He really focused on the Civil War. He was a military guy, not 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 the blood and guts military guy, but the strategy of the Civil War and the North and the South. And then it was the strategy of World War II. And he, you know, at home, we, we had we had a beautiful house in Monterey and a whole wall of the house was these books on strategy and and civil war and, and just you know, different implements of, of the military. And, and, and so he found at a very young age, and you'll hear this from a lot of the veterans, especially the, the ones that have been in the thick of things, is that, like we talked about, they fought for each other. That The flag was the backdrop, but they fought for each other. They found a way to integrate with each other. And the ones that integrated with each other survived the war. And the ones that didn't and fought for themselves may have been overrun, may have made mistakes, critical mistakes. So he brought that philosophy from being a study of history to professional sports and college sports where we're going to play together. You're playing for your guy. You're playing for your teammates. You're, that's what you're really playing for. And again, the backdrop is the flag. The backdrop are the fans. The backdrop is your city. But net net of it all, you're playing for each other. And then when you accomplish that, there's no bigger high in this world is when you host that Super Bowl trophy up in the air and you realize the road you took to get here together. You know, and this is why most of these guys on this 49er team have a lifelong bond. You know, race is, is never an issue. Culture is never an issue. Is what they survived and what they accomplished. And, and that's the history aspect of it. And I, and I think that there's parallels with that and all kinds of other things. But that was just his genre, what was the understanding of camaraderie. When you look at the sidelines of 49ers games, you see you see a lot of the the vets from the teams in the 80s and you know a lot of the old players coming out. There's still that culture that's found there in you know new stadium admittedly and with a new team different personnel but 
there's something that undergirds all of that. And I, that's one of the things that I love uh, about sports is that connection. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, again, it, it, it crosses all boundaries. You know, nobody's this before they're that. They're, they're you know, it, the pronouns them, us. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's us together. Now, is there was there differences? Of course, like anything else. But if you stand on the top of Mount Everest and look down, it's a, it's a long ways. Yeah. You know, and you share that till till your last days. <clears throat> we always close with book recommendations. Uh, what are two or three books that are important to you that you'd like to share with the audience? And I can talk about movies that my father loved. Oh yeah, um, let's go there. I'd love yeah, to hear movies. And you know, my dad was a reader. Again, he it was all you know. Gosh, do I have any of them here? Uh, this was one. <laughs> this was one of my father's favorite books right here. My oh, I can't see it. It's a little Civil War. Who's that one by? It's uh. Shelby Foot. Oh yeah, Shelby Foot, classic. Yeah, yeah. This one here was one that I know he read more than once, and again I've read it, and and that's about all you need to know right there. I mean, I hope that never happens again. Yeah. Um, but as we go to movies, uh, and, and and I don't think we touch about it in the book, but the, the movie that I would catch him watching late night was Twelve O'clock High with Gregory Peck. Okay. Yeah, I've seen because that sure. it mirrored his life. From every aspect. I mean, if you if you look at the movie 12 O'Clock High, when he takes over the, the bombardment group, it's one of his friends, it's one of his buddies, and they're failing, and he has to replace him. And then he comes in and does a bang-up job, and then at the end, he's just become the guy he replaced. And, and, and that that's the natural progression of football. And we talk about when my father had to trade Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott and Roger Craig. Like we talked about in that standard of performance, my father got to that level. What was he going to do? Hang in there? My father knew that he no longer possessed that standard of performance because he had just been through too much. It had taken a toll on him. So he retires right after the Super Bowl, just like Gregory Peck can't climb into that bomber at the very end. But if you go back to the very first scene, he pops right into that thing and he's just doing it. And and that was him. And so, you know, that was kind of a thing I wanted to try to talk about a little bit, you know, in our conversation was that, you know, the trading away of these players, you know, and 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 again, you know, Ronnie Lott was very bitter with my father for being traded. But but then again, they became very, very close at the end because. Like I said, you know, they no one's ever going to thank you for taking it easy on them. And, and, and they all understood because he did it himself. He took himself off the board when it was time. And it was time for him. Trust me, it was. Well, I got to thank you for two things. One, thank you for in the midst of your grief and losing your father, finishing that book, because it was inspirational for me in thinking about my own career. And thank you for having a conversation with us today and, you know, kind of living through your memories, but also sharing your insights that you gathered from those times. I really appreciate you taking the time. Jordan, thank you anytime. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.